0: Well, good morning, Church of the Valley family. I wanted to start this morning by, well, you can see I've got my Mise en Place set. So, what I want to do is do a little demonstration of how to make a milkshake. Why would I do that? Because I want to illustrate what Paul is talking about in the gospel versus some other things in this passage. So how do you make a milkshake? Well, like the gospel, it's really, really simple. So the first thing you do is you go, what is God's plan? Who is God and what is he doing? Well, that's the ice cream. That is where the story begins. Without God, you got nothing. And then, having put the ice cream in the blender, I'm going to add just enough milk, hopefully, to make it all smooth and even out. And that's going to be the gospel, because without the gospel of Jesus Christ, this milkshake isn't going to reach me, because it's going to be too thick. So... Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to add a little because I can always add more but I can't add less. And I'm going to blend. And here we go. Alright, this looks like it's going to be rather a thick shake. That's okay because I think it's going to go down smooth in the end. And hey, if what I'm after Is a milkshake or the simple gospel, then I am all set. What could I add to this to make it any better? Nothing. And yep, tastes perfect. It's going to satisfy me. But what happens if somebody isn't satisfied with that? What happens if somebody wants to, I don't know, change things up a little bit? Well, That's something called syncretism. And to get syncretism, you have to not spill the extra items on the floor, but you do need to look around the world at other religions and try to add some things. And the first thing I notice about this gospel shake is it's only good if what you value is God and the gospel. Maybe the fact that it's exclusive only God and only through Jesus, man, that that goes down difficult. How could I fix that? Well, how about I pour in some motor oil? Mmm, delicious. Not too much because, you know, we don't want to die quickly. So we're going to put that in. But let me think, what else is wrong? I don't know. Vanilla is kind of bland. Motor oil, not particularly tangy. So I've got here my mother's famous brisket seasoning. And I mean, who wouldn't like that? We gotta spice things up. We gotta, we gotta add some wild ceremonies or we've gotta, gotta add some practices that we find in, in unique places. So let's put some of that inside. Mmm. All right. Now, now that I've added this, I'm thinking, there might be something wrong here. and I think what's wrong here is there's not enough meat to it. And that's why, as the last step, I'm going to take this linguiça, and maybe this represents um, some things that I can do, concrete things that I can do to get right with the universe. I'm going to add this to what started off as a pure gospel shake, and now I'm going to blend that up and see how it turns out. Before I go any further, I'd have to say it's looking a little speckled at the moment, and it's not grinding that well. And normally what I'd do is add some more milk to thin it out so that it could chop it up more efficiently, but that would be adding more Jesus. And that's not what a synchronist is trying to do. They're they're trying to remove as much Jesus, dilute as much Jesus, add as many other priorities as possible. Let's keep going. Alright, boy, those those works of the flesh are really difficult to incorporate. Let's try a higher speed. Alright, well, for you viewers at home, it's always nice to have a look at things, but it's the aroma that really makes this stand out. I have to say, I kind of like the Gospel. Alright, well, The question then that the syncretist asks, when they look at world religions, world traditions, human philosophy, what they say is, will it blend? And that's kind of what our passage is about today. Paul is talking about the gospel and receiving Jesus as Lord versus all the other stuff that people apparently in the region of Colossae we're wanting to blend in. And obviously, if you're looking for a vanilla milkshake, the smell of linguisa is not what you want. But Paul's concerned that some who don't know the smell of the vanilla milkshake, of God's plan in Jesus, of the gospel, of reconciliation of himself to us, despite our imperfection. Ah. So instead of just depending on that and growing on that, Paul's saying, "Look, I know there are people there that are going to attempt to to uh, move you off to something else, to add some stuff to your mix." And so, Colossians chapter two uses some strange expressions, and that's because Paul is addressing particular aspects of false teaching that are the focus of today's passage. But before we get there, we have to start at the very beginning of the passage because it starts with the words in the NIV in Colossians 2.6, so then, okay, and all of a sudden we go, okay, that's a connection point to what Paul's been saying. Does it feel like I point this kind of thing out all the time? It does to me, and that's because the Bible is written as a whole. Paul's letter to Colossae wasn't written as a a set of things that are to be pulled separately and considered separately, he's making a whole argument. He's got an idea that he's pursuing in a number of ways and we need to follow his logic in order to understand what God wants us to know, what Paul intended the believers at Colossae to know and what God purposed for us to share in all these many years later. Okay. Paul's letter is coherent, it makes sense as a whole, but my problem is I've got a terrible memory, and so if I try to remember all of what happened last week, I have trouble. So let's go back and see what Paul was talking about before we transition into this what so then we should be doing. So as Pastor Tim described in last week's message, Paul says in Colossians 2, 2, and 3, My goal is that they be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There's nowhere else to look for everything you need to know, says Paul. What does Paul want for the Colossian believers? That they would know Jesus, that they would know him. Why do they especially need to know this? Well, he continues in verse 4 to explain that. I tell you this so no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. And you don't have to read much of the New Testament in order to get a hint that from the very beginning of the Christian church, believers were being exposed to false teaching. And this is a key concern in really most of the epistles. Whether we intend to or not, it seems, We're always soaking things up, and not all of them are the good things that we want to be assimilating. And fine-sounding arguments have always been dangerously impressive-sounding, but Paul concluded last week's passage by noting that he had confidence based on evidence of the Colossians' discipline and faith in Christ. Colossians 2.5, For though I am absent from you in the body, I can't be with you. I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are, and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, as we start verse 6, just as they have gotten to know Jesus and are displaying growth and substance because of the understanding they're developing, Paul says, keep it up. Verse 6, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Okay, so Paul is saying more than just keep it up. He says something about receiving Christ. In fact, he says two things about receiving Christ. Being in Christ's lordship is the first thing he says. He says that his readers have received Christ Jesus as Lord. What does that mean? It means Jesus is the boss. The phrase means Jesus the Messiah is my king. And I think this is an interesting way that Paul talks about believers and Jesus. He says, you received Christ Jesus as Lord. He doesn't say you chose him. He doesn't say he was an encouraging addition to your life. He doesn't say you were fine the way you were, but no, he's talking about receiving the gospel. Paul is saying that believers have received something of ultimate importance We can see this idea in other Pauline writings, including 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. So Paul tells these troublesome Corinthians, you've received something of great value, so don't let go of it. He goes on in that chapter to say, what I received, I passed on to you, and talks about the death and burial and resurrection and appearances of Jesus, because the gospel is about the person, Jesus. All right, when I made that milkshake, ice cream and milk, what I'm trying to symbolize is the gospel is about jesus it's god's plan for humanity through jesus and we keep going back to this because this is the reality of what god has done for us in christ and the reality is we need reminders of what we have received in the gospel of jesus we need reminders we need reminders of what the authentic gospel is without any disgusting additives if we're going to live life the way God intended us to live. So, how are you being reminded? Where are you personally getting your individual reminders of the gracious gift of Jesus? Those who deliver the word at Church of the Valley are responsible to provide this. Those who select songs seek to do this. Those who lead community groups Ought to be focused on this. One-on-one disciples should be aiming for this in those they disciple, but unless you engage, it doesn't matter what they do. We need these reminders because the relationship with Jesus is very different from any other relationship we have. It's tricky because he is the boss. And so I have to ask you, have you ever had a boss, a manager, a chief, uh, whomever, who commanded your respect but also had your friendship. I feel really fortunate in that this has happened several times in my working life. Bosses I have known as people, as individuals outside of the work relationship, known them well, and respected them both in the workplace and out of it. And Jesus is a little bit like that. Those are our whispers of what what the real relationship with Jesus is because he's the biggest boss ever. And yet he's a perfect combination of powerful and personal because Jesus perfectly combines power and presence. And you can know him even though he's beyond understanding. You can know him. I'm going to say that again, but he is beyond understanding that doesn't make sense, right? We can't wrap our minds around him, but he wants us to know him as fully as we possibly can. But which way do you err? So my question is, does Jesus, as you know him, look more like a distant CEO or more like just another bro? Maybe you say right now, he is my boss and he is my friend, and I, I've, it's all good. That's not my question. My question is, what's your tendency Do you see him as distant, as powerful, as authoritative, but not directly interested in you, or not very much? Or do you see him as all about you, but maybe you're not seeing all of his majesty and all of his power? Despite this huge difference between us and God, this huge distance between us, Paul is saying that this boss of all bosses, Jesus, needs to be known. Paul wants us to continue in Christ. When Paul says in verse 6, continue to live your lives in him, he doesn't say, have coffee with Jesus. He uses an even more organic metaphor. You and I are to be plants, maybe coffee plants if you prefer, whose nourishment and growth comes from Jesus. Be Jesus powered coffee plants, overflowing with what he produces in you, not what's around you naturally. Let's look at the next verse, Colossians 2.7, rooted up and built in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Oh, I like this. Rooted and built up in him. We are to be dependent on Christ Jesus because Jesus is our boss. He's our king. He's our savior. He's our master. He's our hope. He's our delight. He is our everything. And if you're watching this from Silicon Valley, you're a plant in the soil here. But your roots have to be feeding off something else, not what our valley is selling. They need, I don't know, so much more than material abundance. We need so much more than shelter from economic downturns. We need more than significant work. We need more than smart people, more than great places to go, more than good schools, more than an abundance of resources. No, all those things can be enjoyable, but if they're what you and I are living our lives for, we are not continuing in the way Paul is talking about that. So do you know what you are living your life for? Does your answer line up with reality? In other words, do you know something, and if you honestly assess your life, is it really something else that seems to be coming out as what you're living your life for? Sometimes in marital counseling, the counselor or coach will ask couples who have grown apart a question. They'll ask them to describe what they saw in each other when they first fell in love, and this exercise, could, I suppose, help the couple envision ways to capture or recapture those thoughts or feelings that they had before. But really, the intent is more about breaking more recent patterns of indifference or even hostility. John gets a message from Jesus that seems relevant here. And so I want to tell you about something he records in Revelation chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. He's talking to a church that continues to serve Jesus. The marriage is ongoing, and they, they clean up after each other. But even though they're serving Jesus, this church isn't continuing in Christ the way Paul is urging the Colossians to do. Here's what Jesus says. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name. Okay, that's good. And have not grown weary. worry. Excellent. Yet I hold this against you. Uh-oh. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. This isn't a plant metaphor. It's a new metaphor. It's a metaphor about light. Okay, we don't talk anymore is a sad song when it's about people who don't feel the same way for each other. But when it's us and Jesus... It is a dire situation, and Paul is about to explain how that could happen in Colossae. So, is we don't talk anymore anything like your relationship with Jesus? All right. In the next uh, bit, Paul is going to talk about being free, and Paul wants his readers to be free, to remain free from slavery to sin, and he he talks about this elsewhere. In Romans 6, verse 16, he says, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. What he tells the Galatians in his letter to Galatia is, in Galatians 5, 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You can't keep picking this up. Be free. Be really free. Don't be enslaved to your appetites or your habits or your cultural traditions or your family or whatever it is that keeps dragging you away from that milkshake that's pure God's plan of the gospel in Jesus. Because all of these other things can be ideas that imprison. What he writes to the church at Colossae is... In verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Paul's got something specific in mind. It's a little hard for us to be exactly sure what he's talking about, but what we do know is this. The arguments seem sound, but they're without real substance. Paul Tripp Describes it this way It appears attractive with good arguments and tight logic. It seems to have substance with its years of study and research, yet it is hollow. It doesn't have substance. It doesn't offer real answers. It doesn't lead to true insight. It doesn't deliver what it promises. It is empty. Why? Because it doesn't submit to Christ. What human traditions are the Colossian Christians being exposed to? We don't know exactly. But as Pastor Tim has said before in this series, false teachers always attempt, in one way or another, to diminish Jesus. And they always reduce who he is. They always crowd him out with other priorities. Ultimately, they do what Paul Tripp said. They don't submit to Christ. Now, I'm the last person to be afraid of ideas. Having ideas are good. Not discerning good ideas from bad ideas is, well a bad idea. The Apostle Peter talked about this in one of his letters. He said that false teachers make promises of freedom but deliver slavery. These false teachers promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. Their hearts have hardened because they heard the truth, they responded to the truth, and the truth didn't take root. Paul's looking out for the churches, Peter's looking out for the churches as well, knowing what a danger it is for people who should be free in Christ to instead be persuaded to serve and be enslaved to anything else. These people peddling anything but the pure gospel of Jesus Christ are pushing errors. And if Jesus isn't our everything, then the errorists win. That's right. The errorists win. Okay, tradition and elementary principles. If we go back to the text in verse 8, here's a side note. See to it sounds kind of businesslike in verse 8, but I'd translate the Greek as look out or beware because of the combination of words used. All right, 2-8 again. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. What we read as takes you captive means something more like drags you off like loot. The warning is if you fall into the philosophy that Paul is talking about, it will control you. It will own you. You're supposed to be owned by Jesus. And Paul is saying, look out. There are things that will own you instead if you pursue them. Because tradition can enslave. What is this philosophy like? As I've said, we don't know exactly, but tradition was something Jesus confronted with his earthly ministry. We've seen in our study of John's gospel, remember that? The teachers of the law mostly didn't like who Jesus was or what he taught and what he didn't teach. They wanted to add things to the milkshake. They didn't value the plan of God. They preferred the plan that they had. And the reality was that those teachers had added to God's law from the Hebrew scriptures, and Jesus called all of us to a greater righteousness than any of those teachers could demonstrate. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus puts it this way. In uh, Matthew 5, verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses, excuse me, that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. How could that be? These people were committed to living out their lives according to God's law. Well, their version of God's law and their version wasn't rooted in Jesus as Lord, as Paul is telling the Colossians, and so they didn't grow. Are Jewish traditions the one facing the Colossian church? Maybe partly. Probably they were also confronted with teachers whose ideas were from pagan religions, pagan philosophy, or even Jewish philosophy as opposed to theology. But what about elementary principles? Well, elementary principles Flunk out. The NIV translates this as elemental spiritual forces. Uh, Verse 8 again. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental forces of this world rather than on Christ. If you look at the English Standard Version, the extra spiritual version, it says the elemental spirits of the world. Okay, a little bit different read. The NASB, New American Standard Bible, says elementary principles of the world. Okay, why all these different translations? Well, because the Greek phrase isn't a common one. And because it doesn't woodenly translate into an English expression very well. And so commentators have come up with a variety of ideas of what this could mean. And they have arguments for and against several ideas. But here are three primary ones that most commentators say these are the primary ones to engage with. And it has to do with powers, with spiritual beings, or with basic religious ideas. So powers could be pagan deities, or maybe the elements that the ancients believed made up the world, like earth, wind, and fire, not like your shining star no matter who you are, uh, but earth and wind and fire, okay? Beings could refer to spiritual forces in opposition to the gospel and basic religious ideas are the ideas that human religions have always included all the way back from the first time a person made up a religion. And the debate between holders of these views involves people with a much better feel for the language that Paul is writing in than I have for sure. But I think from context, There's something to be said for all three of these notions, and I wouldn't throw any of them out without a lot more consideration, but I'm most persuaded that the notion is ideas that are common to human efforts at religion. That's what's meant by what what Paul's talking here, and that's why Tim has mentioned syncretism a few times before. That's the idea that one can take elements from all religions and philosophies and harmonize them into something good but anything you add to Christ waters him down at best and contradicts him at worst. You do not want the milkshake once it's got motor oil and brisket seasoning and uncooked linguiça in it. So my question to you is, what ways are you aware of in which you are drawn to human efforts at religion? What what kind of human religion are you drawn to? Is it to, to works? Is it to knowledge? Is it to good deeds? Is it to disciplines? Is it to feeling smug? Is it to heredity? What is it? There are all kinds of ways in which humans have practiced religion. Is there a way or two that you find yourself in your flesh tempted toward? Paul doesn't spend a bunch of time explaining what he's arguing against though, despite the fact that I've now spent a little while on it. He instead points his readers to the who he is arguing for, because once you know the taste and smell of the real milkshake, you are not going to want that other garbage because the real one's going to make you full. So Paul says to look at who Jesus is in verse nine for in Christ. All the fullness of the deity dwells, lives in bodily form. God is spirit. And yet Jesus, who had a bodily form, is God. They are one. He's not missing any godness. Jesus is God. Jesus is God with skin. But that's not a random thought because Paul connects that to who you and I are verse 10, in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Paul says, you have everything you need in Jesus. Everything you were designed to be, everything our good God intended for you is experienced by that connection to Jesus that Paul has been talking about. Everything God intends for you comes by being and remaining in Christ. Paul says, don't listen to those who teach based on tradition or powers or beings or human religious ideas, however attractive you may find any of them. There is no power, no authority that is greater than Jesus, not Muhammad, not Joseph Smith, not Lucifer. Not rule following, not the promise of success and comfort, not the natural forces behind our material existence, not DNA, not even the law of Moses. And that means there is nowhere else to look for ultimate truth than relationship with the person of Jesus, receiving the work of Jesus and embodying the teaching of Jesus. Paul says that Jesus is the head of every power and authority, and he is the one who makes you full Okay, Christ makes me full. He starts a relationship with me and he grows me. And as I remain in him and he develops me, he makes me full. Now let's move on because Paul talks about how Jesus gives you life. He wants you to be alive. Think maybe there was some teaching about physical circumcision by false teachers in Colossae. Mm. When I look at verse 11, I'm going to say yes. Yes. Verse 11, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Paul is saying human hands and human rituals never fixed the problem that you and I are sinners. Human hands, even when implementing rituals God instituted, like When Abraham got the covenant, he got circumcision and was instructed to follow that, but it didn't fix the sin problem and the history of the nation of Israel proves it. Instead, Jesus took care of it and the faith of Abraham and the faith of some of those who followed him were credited to them as righteousness that circumcision couldn't accomplish Look at verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. If you have been baptized, who performed that baptism? So in my case, it was my uncle Bud, who's 90 years old now, and he's the one who baptized me. But even though I love my uncle Bud, he didn't bury me and he didn't raise me. He led me through a symbolic enactment of having died to sin, being buried with Christ. And then he symbolically raised me out of the water, but I came out because Christ brought me with him. Had nothing to do with what my uncle was doing. God raised Christ from the dead and I got the world's greatest ride along. Paul then uses a metaphor that's familiar to anybody who has heard Pastor Tim or to me, refer to Ephesians chapter 2. So Colossians 2.13 says this, When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Okay, wait, what? You and I were dead. Dead, dead, dead. What can you do when you're dead? That's right, nothing. Can you fix yourself? No, no. Can human philosophy bring you back? No. Can human effort bring you back? Not once you're dead. But Christ changes everything. In Christ, God has made you and he's made me alive. If we are in the beautiful situation of having received Christ and continuing to grow in him, We have been made alive in a way that we could never be, however wonderful we are, in his absence. Why do we always make such a big deal about this? Because first, we all need Christ in order to experience the full life that's promised to us. We only experience fullness of life in relationship with Jesus. And second, we need to understand that this same Christ is the one we get to know. He's not distant. He's not... uh, remote from us. He's not beyond our connection. He is our constant hope and our eternal desire, not as a distant CEO, but as the truest friend and the best master we could ever have. We grow more alive in relationship with our loving boss, Jesus. We grow more alive when we are in a vital relationship with our boss, with our savior, with our master, with our king, Jesus. And we can be secure in that relationship. And this is a a, a last section. It's a, a different metaphor. It's a legal metaphor. Where verse 13 ends is so hopeful. He forgave us all our sins. He didn't just make us alive and flawed. He brought us to life in a way that allowed God to see Christ's perfection instead of all the stuff, all the crud we still bring. But before we go any further, note that we can't add anything to our salvation. We can be secure because Jesus makes us alive. He makes us free. He makes us full. He grows us as we continue in his company. And so what's this last metaphor? He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. We were guilty as hell. We were the ones who were going to be nailed to the wall, and we were condemned to death as a result of who we were and what we did. And Jesus didn't just take our guilty state for a moment or polish off a blemish on our hood. Paul says, your sin is gone, paid for by the cross. So let me ask you, what guilt are you still carrying around with you? You don't have to carry the guilt You don't have to carry any kind of shame because if you give it to Jesus, he has already paid for it on the cross. You can approach him because he has done this work just for you. Jesus declared this himself in John chapter 8 verse 36. He's in the middle of explaining some things and he says, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. If you are in Christ, but don't feel free from the condemnation that comes because you sin, you notice your sin and you can't deny it. You notice your sin and you see its consequences for yourself and other people. You see your sin and you thought you were done with it and it keeps coming back. But if you are in Christ and you don't feel free from the condemnation that comes because you sin, that feeling of shame and condemnation is what's wrong, not Jesus. There's nothing wrong with God's plan. There's nothing wrong with your savior. It's how you feel about the situation because you've got some rootedness to develop in. You've got some growth to continue in and you've got to know him better so that you can trust him better so that you can feel secure in a way that you never could. Paul concludes today's passage saying, oh, but wait, there's more. Verse 15, having disarmed the power's and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus didn't just win a battle. He humiliated the powers and authorities that oppose God's plan. There is not still a battle going on. Jesus didn't say, drop your sword. He made them toothless. They cannot own you if he owns you. If Jesus owns you, You are secure in Jesus. Secure how? This relationship isn't contingent on your perfect performance. It's not going to depend on anything but how you and I submit to our King. Because there is no power that can stand up to our Jesus. There is no tradition that needs to be mixed in for maximum effect. There is no outcome that God intends that requires Jesus plus something or someone else. Thanks to Jesus's work, we can't add anything to our salvation. We can be secure because Jesus makes us alive. He makes us free. He makes us full and grows us as we continue walking in his company. And so I want to I want to conclude us today by leading us briefly in communion. So I'm just going to take a moment and I'm going to get some elements. And yeah, it was possible to get some elements uh, from the church yesterday. But today I'm going to use the milkshake. And I'm going to use a biscotti. And I'm going to celebrate communion. So today's passage talked about receiving Christ Jesus as Lord in verse six. So then just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. And I mentioned Paul talking about similar terms of receiving the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. But in 1 Corinthians 11, he does a similar thing. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26. Listen for the word receive. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. Where have we heard that before? Paul received it and he passed it on. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So here's the thing. If you aren't able to celebrate communion with us on the Zoom call, and bringing whatever bread-like item and whatever beverage-like item that you have available, then you can do that right now. You can pause the video. And when you're ready, break your bread-like item. This is for you. Take it and eat it. Christ's body did what your body wasn't up for. It followed the law and it fulfilled it for you. And if you are in Christ, it hasn't been your good works cleansing you. It's always been the blood of Jesus, the new covenant that his blood made possible. Let's pray. God, I thank you that your plan is perfect. That the way that you rescued us is also the way that you grow us. It's also the way you bear fruit in us and mature us and allow us to serve one another in a way that allows the cycle to continue. And I pray that you will allow us to rely on Christ for everything and that you will guard us. Will you help us To be focused on Jesus, our friend and boss. Jesus, our Lord and master. Jesus, the one we love and trust. And will you allow us to be aware where we're influenced by something other than that? Will you help us to recognize the taste of the real milkshake? And would you allow us to notice when there's motor oil or linguisa in there? I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you.